Support for Refined by Fire comes from Elkhart Brass. Elkhart Brass is a new sponsor on the show. And when we talk about Elkhart, we can talk about a lot of things. We talk about Made in America. We talk about Elkhart Brass rocking out since 1902 or the wide variety of product application. Uh, But I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to tell you that we're repping Elkhart Brass on this show and taking them on as a sponsor because we believe that Elkhart truly has the best interest of the end user in mind. In a world of gimmicks and sales pitches that is fire service vendors, Elkhart is making nozzles and appliances that are truly firefighter focused and they believe that their products speak for themselves and I have to agree. If your committee or your department is looking to make a purchase of nozzles and appliances, go to elkartbrass.com, find your dealer, and hit them up. Uh, lastly, stay tuned at the end of the show. We're going to have a special little piece from Elkhart Brass for everyone to check out. Yo. Yo. All right, welcome to episode five of Refined by Fire, a Brothers in Battle media production. Our guest for this episode is Dina Ali, captain with the Raleigh Fire Department and all-around general badass. Dina is a prolific researcher and author with over a dozen pieces in national publications over the last couple of years. Uh, rather than writing opinion pieces uh, that are prevalent in those kind of magazines, Dina's work revolves around conducting and studying academic research and applying that research to the fire service. Uh, so it's kind of a cool niche that she has as a writer. Dina's involved with 555 Fitness as an advocate and is a board member for the Carolina Brotherhood, uh, which is a benevolence fund benefiting the family families of fallen firefighters, law enforcement, and EMS workers in the Carolinas. We get into what that's all about. We get into her work as an FDIC presenter. Her class is called Awareness Level Suicide Prevention. Uh, You should absolutely check it out if you will be at FDIC 2018. Um, I think after hearing this episode, you'll be convinced of that yourself. You know, we've had some fantastic guests so far on this show. And I can tell you, Dina was a little nervous about filling those shoes. uh, But she did all that and more. Obviously, we love the stories and experiences. I mean, that's the stated goal and purpose of this show is to collect those and be that living history of the fire service. But this episode probably has the most practical application within it. Uh, as the host here, I'm not ever trying to beg for likes and shares or give me a five-star review or all that kind of stuff. Um, but in this particular case, I'm going to challenge listeners to share this heavily. Uh, I know it'll be the first time that I just sent out like a mass email to my department asking everyone from chief to proby to listen to this episode because it, it has the potential to save firefighter lives. If you listen to this and apply what you've learned, 
be able to identify within ourselves individually when there's darkness, when there are um, mental health things going on, um, to be able to potentially identify that in the people around us, to learn kind of the resources for how we can help them individually, kind of one-on-one or where they could be referred to um, if they're having those kind of crises. So the potential is there to save firefighter lives through uh, this episode. So I I ask that you listen, enjoy, and share. So here is my talk with Captain Dina Ali. Okay, so uh, here we are with Dina Ali. Dina, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Okay, Dina, uh, I was creeping on... uh, your Facebook or Instagram or something. And I saw somewhere before we get into firefighting that you were a cop. So we all make mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's what I chalked that one up to, but, um, yeah, I did that for a few years. Okay. Well, well, that's cool. I'm, I am fascinated by what people did before they were firefighters. So, um, give us your best cop story. (laughs) <laughs> so I think maybe my funniest one is the time that I pulled up on a domestic disturbance and it was in the front yard and I pull up and these two are going at it. And so of course me being the professional that I am, I jump out to take care of business. And, um, because we have the computers and everything and the police cars, you always leave the car running that right. way the battery doesn't die. So you develop this really, uh, like quick habit of jumping out, locking the door um, and shutting it, car running, but you always have a spare key. Well, um, that day I neglected to put the car in park first. <laughs> so I pull up on the domestic <laughs> and I jump out uh, to handle business and uh, my car just uh, starts to, you know, keep on rolling. And, uh, how, how long so was it before got, you realized it? <laughs> I mean, it was pretty immediate. Um, and I like, like I'm standing up, I, I just shut the door. So I go to grab the handle and I locked it. And so my spare key is clipped on my belt. And, um, and so, you know, I had to, you know, you know, try to grab that, get in the car. So, I mean, these two people, I don't know how they can take me seriously at this point. Um, and I think that actually helped the situation. I think it helped like mitigated the situation cause everybody stopped what they were doing. You had like some but, uh, relief there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Looking back, that was probably, um, maybe one of the funniest things I did. Um, we used to, when I worked in Smithfield, we had, uh, these like devices that we could throw out on the street and basically puncture tires during a car chase. So that was maybe one of my favorite things to do. Um, Johnson County, we'd call and say like, Hey, we're chasing the car into your city limits. And we just go, um, stage somewhere and put these strips in the road, um, and kind of wait for the car to come and, you know, the car would hit it and very soon thereafter it'd be disabled. So that was probably one of the funnest things that we did. Well, it does sound like a lot of fun. Actually the, the firehouse where I work at, we have uh, some deputies there in the house with us. So uh, it's, it's kind of cool getting to know those folks and uh, you know, they roll up and help us out sometimes and we roll up and help them out. And uh, they're always full of good stories. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Um, that's one of the things I noticed when I made the transition from law enforcement to fire in six months as a police officer, you probably have the equivalent of like four years um, firefighting, like call taking and experiences. I mean, as a police officer, you are just constantly going from call to call and uh, you see a lot of random stuff. 
how did that help develop your mindset as a firefighter? Well, it, I mean, it basically from, so I never wanted to be a firefighter. That was just, it was never on my radar. I'd always wanted to be a police officer since I was a little kid. And so becoming a police officer was the first time I had actually had experience with firefighters. And so they would pull up, take care of business and leave. And then we'd be stuck on a scene forever. And I was super jealous. Um, So that's what made me kind of want to transition. And then becoming a firefighter, I think my law enforcement experience definitely helped me with decision making and um, you, you know, you hear all the time about people that scream on the radio. Um, it, it's those things having just being used to talking on the radio, radio and knowing that if you're excited, nobody's going to listen to you. So that, that definitely helped on that end. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Well, we'll stop talking about police work. I think, I think that's the most police work we'll ever talk about on the show, but, but it was cool. Like I said, I'm always interested in what folks did, uh, before their fire career. So all right, Dina, you're a captain at Raleigh Fire Department in North Carolina, right? Yep, that's right. Very cool. So um, Carolina Brotherhood is something that you're involved with. I just, you know, when I started thinking about North Carolina, I just like immediately trying to think about people I know over there, stuff that I know about that goes on over there. And I don't know a lot about kind of that eastern seaboard, south, and in, in North Carolina's uh, kind of a, an interesting place. But uh, <laughs> I know a little bit about Carolina Brotherhood, um, but can you kind of tell us what that is and uh, why you got involved? So in 2011, a captain from Asheville Fire Department, Jeff Bowen, died in an arson fire. And that same year, a couple of guys from the Charlotte Fire Department participated in the Brotherhood ride, which uh, in 2011, they rode from Florida to New York to honor um, FDNY, um, and nine 11 and to honor all the guys that were lost on nine 11 and Jim Squatieri and Chris Taxon, they were both from Charlotte and they participated. And, you know, months later when Jeff died, they were like, Hey, we've got to do something. Um, cause there's really outside of, um, the North Carolina fallen firefighters foundation and their annual dinner, there wasn't a lot that was happening in North Carolina to honor, fallen and to kind of unite us from one end of the state to the other. So they came up with this idea to have the Carolina Brotherhood ride. And that first year that we rode was 2012. We started in Wilmington, North Carolina, and we rode to Asheville. And so if you look at North Carolina on the map, Wilmington's at the coast and then Asheville's in the mountains. So it was from one end of the state to the other. And Along the way, we stopped at fire stations, churches. Um, we spent the night. And the neatest part about it was that um, Jim, we call him Squid. His last name is Squitteria. Yeah, Squid's, he, <laughs> Squid's a great guy. He's a pretty good dude. He, um, he was able to get about, um, I think, eight to ten. I can't remember exactly how many, but um, Asheville firefighters and Jeff Bowen's crew to ride with us. So. Yeah. Every day we started off the day with a story about Jeff from one of his guys. Um, and they carried his duty shirt in their pocket um, for the entire ride. On the last day, they actually passed it around to all of us. So we all carried his shirt. Um, so it was a pretty incredible experience. So from that year, we've just kind of evolved. And now we ride for 
all of the fallen fire police and EMS in North and South Carolina. And we ride across North and South Carolina. That's pretty fantastic. Those are some big rides. I was uh, checking out some of the mileage you guys put on, which, which year was the toughest one? And, and what was like, what were the biggest challenges you guys uh, found on your ride? So I, I would say the second year was the toughest. And that was because that was the first year that we said, Hey, we, we've got to ride for everybody. Mm-hmm. So we maximized the mileage and we maximized the days. And that was a really tough year because we rode through the mountains. Um, and I think we did eight days that year, which was just ridiculous. People, you know, when you're around the same people that long, you start getting a little annoyed with each other. Um, the long days, um, the, you know, dehydration, tired legs, they just, each day, you know, it feels a little worse and it wears on you. So that second year, I think was the toughest year. We haven't done that many days since we've kind of, um, learned that six is really our max. And yeah, that's plenty. I think probably. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, that's definitely plenty. Right, yeah, two cool. years ago, we um, we had a couple we, – we had it was shorter, it was six days, but we had a couple of really long days. It was the first time I rode over 120 miles. We had one day where we rode 127. That was pretty insane. Yeah, I mean I ride 10 miles to work sometimes, so I feel like that's, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty fit, right? <laughs> that's, that's cool. Um, good on you guys uh, for doing that and um, you know, creating a, a resource to support those, those people's families. Well, that, that kind of dovetails into into fitness, and, and fitness is how I first became aware of you, saw some of the stuff you were doing on social media, and I was like, man, who's this chick, dude? She is uh, <laughs> she's pretty legit. Um, it's clearly important to you. I've seen some of the work you've done with 555. Um, so I guess just first and foremost, how has a dedication to fitness made a difference in your career slash your life? Um. I mean, it's so funny because you're in the firehouse and there's all these different personalities and you've got some guys who never work out, but on a fire call, they're like the strongest people. Um, they will outlast and run around when circles around you. But I know just for me that there's absolutely no way that I can do this job or keep up unless I stay on top of my fitness. I remember when I first came out of the academy, I was assigned downtown and we had the high rises. So on high rise alarms, any anyone that was less than eight stories, you had to take the stairs and we rode three most of the time. So you had to carry a lot of stuff. And I remember the first time, um, I think it was, I had to go up seven flights with my captain and I thought I was going to die. Like my Mm -hmm. legs were on fire. So after that, I got really serious about, um, just trying to increase strength and endurance and making sure that I can do it. Yeah, so much that's humility, right? Like so much of it oh, yeah. is just like being realistic with ourselves about what we can and can't actually accomplish. Oh, absolutely. I remember uh once we had a fire alarm at the courthouse and um we got to the fire floor and my captain was like talking to uh the people there and I got down on one knee to kind of catch my breath. And I remember when I went to stand up, there was like this uh three seconds where everything kinda went black. Um so yeah, th- this job will definitely um put you in your place. And I just, I don't want to be the person slowing anybody down. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a good, uh, that's a good way to come at it. Um, well, so personally I've been, I've done a lot of different things with like 
I guess, different ways of pursuing fitness. And something that I'm playing around with right now is a linear barbell progression. I'm kind of like focusing on strength training and I'm still trying to kind of determine for myself and my body type and my age, like what the ideal method of training is specifically for this career. And like, as I look at what you're doing, I mean, obviously it looks like you spent a lot of time on a bike. I see you doing barbell training, sandbag stuff. I even see you messing around with like what, you know, movements and techniques that are associated with strongman training. You got some of those big old, like, I don't even know what they're called, man. These big old kegs and handles on them. So is there, is there, is there a specific way you found to be like most effective or is it kind of like, yes, all of the above? See, for me, I found that it's yes, all of the above because I found that if I focus on strength, um, the endurance kind of suffers a little bit and you need endurance. And then I found, um, I actually did four half Ironman races. I'm still not sure how to pull that off, but to train for that, it was strictly cardio. Right. And during that time, I noticed my strength was declining huge. So I've just kind of fallen into a routine that's not a routine. So I haven't had a gym membership in two years. I survive off of the equipment at the fire station. Um, you talked about my sandbag. I have a brute force sandbag, which is probably um, the number one sandbag out there. Those guys are awesome. They're um, they're in Colorado. They make the sandbags right here in Colorado. Um, if anything goes wrong, they replace it. But the sandbags have eight handles, and they are stitched um, with incredible detail and strength. So you can, I mean, you could throw it, toss it, do whatever. The the handles aren't gonna get destroyed. So I keep one of those in my trunk. Um, nice. Yeah. So on my days off, I'll either go out for a ride, go out for a run, or, um, they have an app and on their app, they post two workouts a day. I'll do one of their workouts. And I found that that kind of works for me at the station. Um, I'll, I mix it up, but I, I, it's funny. I mix it up. I do a lot, but, I, but there's a routine to it. So I do about 20 minutes of cardio and then I'll do one big muscle group lift and mm-hmm. actually 555 just started um, a basic barbell training for firehouses. So on their app, they have uh, three different movements and you're supposed to do one each day. So they have the bench press, the squat and the deadlift. So I've been going through with their cycle. We're on week 12 right now. Um, and I do, I'll do that. And when you do their, for, for example, their squats, it takes about 20 minutes to get through it and your legs are smoked. <laughs> so after that i'll do a quick circuit um and i just found for me just mixing it up like that it it, it works for me the best it keeps me engaged it keeps me from getting bored um and it's kind of neat i uh every year that we've done our fitness test at the raleigh fire department i have shaved a little bit of time and i was really stoked this year because um it was the first year that i was a captain um and i had the fastest time that i've ever had and um of course, I'm competitive, so I compared my time to all the other females in the apartment, <laughs> and I had the fastest time. So it was kind of like something to be proud of, like, man, beat those young kids. That's cool. That is cool, and hopefully it's something that they're looking at as well, and it's a bar for them to chase. That's the goal. Like, I don't – because I, I remember when I started, you know, you kind of look up, and that was part of the fear of it is, you know, um, looking at people who've gotten a little complacent, and it's like, man, I, I don't want to – I don't want to get that way. Like I don't want that to happen. So yeah. Awesome. All right. So you mentioned you were a new captain or a new ish captain anyway. 
Um, I'm going through my first promotional process right now, actually, testing for an engineer at my department. So this is, you know, a particular interest to me. And obviously, I assume, you know, promotion's a fact of life in the fire department, these kind of rigorous and regimented processes. So uh, I think it's something that has value for everyone, I hope. So specifically, what was your motivation for promotion? Like, why did you want to become uh, the engine boss, the the captain? (laughs) So... It's funny the way you put that it because it. I guess I I never even thought of it that way exactly. Okay. But the way I guess for me, the way it's always worked is whenever there's an opportunity and a challenge and I'm um, capable and I'm able to go through it, I just feel like I should. And then when I get into it, it like we talked about earlier, the competitive nature <laughs> kicks in. Yeah. So I get I get pretty competitive with it. I was lucky for both of my promotions. I um, the when I first made driver, which is a really competitive process. My captain at the time was um, a captain that was probably one of the best captains on the Raleigh Fire Department, and I'd put him against a lot of captains in the U.S. He's just an incredible captain. I have the utmost respect for him, and he pushed me to take the test, and he pushed me to do well. He was funny. He was like, "If you do not score in the top five, I'm not going to claim you. <laughs> so, uh, good for him. I think that's awesome. I, I do too, because without his motivation, we all, I mean, Raleigh is a pretty, it's not a huge department, but it's a pretty big department and there's a lot of different attitudes. And, you know, there's some guys out there that are like, you shouldn't promote until you have more experience and you know more. And you start to listen to those things and you're like, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't take the test because, you know, there's a lot of other people that have been here longer that know more and, you know, maybe I should wait and get some more experience. So it's really good to have somebody that you look up to, somebody who's really good at their job, who tells you that they believe in you, that you're ready and you need to do this. That's cool. So, yeah. uh, I talk about that. I don't know. That seems to be something that I take and maybe it's just my bias, but from a lot of answers when people, you know, give it a specific answer on the show, like they who they met men, mention, excuse me, is their mentor, the person who like spoke into their life and, you know, provided some motivation or provided some realization or whatever it was. And, you know, um, yeah, kudos to that captain for believing in you and then like speaking into your life and helping that kind of come to fruition. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I look back and I'm very appreciative of them. Um, and I, you talk about mentors. I've, that's another thing I, 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 I guess I was lucky. I've, I've had so many just really awesome mentors. There's one guy, Justin Bolduck. He's a senior firefighter. Um, and when I first came out of the academy, he was uh, the firefighter on my engine. And now he's firefighter on rescue. He is one of the smartest firefighters you'll ever meet. Um, he has no desire to promote. He, he likes being a firefighter. Um, and he's really good at it. Um, and he, too, pushed me to promote and to do well. And um, that just kind of you know, I guess says a lot about his character and says a lot about, you know, the way things should be. Not, not everybody has to do it, but it doesn't mean that it's not right for one person. Right. Yeah. I think a healthy fire department has a mix of all those things and all those people. And again, uh, my perspective is still immature. I have a a long way to go in my career, but like, it seems to me like you really need those 20 to 30 year firefighters in the backseat. And then it's also, beneficial and okay to have people who are really interested in promoting quickly because they know exactly, you know, what they want out of their career. I, I think it's healthy uh, to have both. Oh yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, 
an engine isn't just one person. Um, well, I'm on an engine, that's why I speak of an engine, but it's not just one person. You've got four people and, you know, right now, uh, one of my firefighters has got twice as much time on the job as me. Um, but it works well. He has no desire to promote. Um, so I get to kind of use him to bounce ideas off of and, you know, question because every decision is not just my decision. It's our decision. Awesome. So how did that promotion, how did moving to the right front seat change? If it did, I guess I'm, I'm making, uh, an assumption. Uh, did it change your perspective or your mindset at all? Um, I mean, of, of course it does because until then you think a lot about yourself and you think a lot about, um, being the best that you can be for that role that you're in. At least that's the way I was. When you move over to the right front seat, you quickly learn that it's got nothing to do with you anymore. <laughs> um, if, if it does have to do with you, then you're doing it wrong. Um, so now I have to constantly be aware of three other people and what's going to be best for them. So that's, I think that's been one of the biggest changes is, you know, the guys might not want to train, but is that best for them? And then um, I've got one guy that's taking some classes right now and he's working his tail off. He's got two young kids, so he does a lot of the schoolwork at the station. So, you know, I, I try to give him that time. So it's just constantly trying to balance um, doing the right thing, getting things done, and then doing the right thing for everybody. Fantastic. Um, I guess something that's a little more individual is uh, I I think I heard you on another show and you mentioned that you were pursuing a master's degree or you still are pursuing a master's degree. I'm not sure which. But, uh, so I'm a college dropout. I definitely um, have it on my list to revisit my education and pr uh, pursue a degree someday. So I'm fascinated by people who do that as adults, go back to school, whether that's you know, whether that's a GED, whether that's a, a bachelor's or an advanced degree. Um, so what, what was your motivation for pursuing that grad degree? So uh, when I first made driver, um, which was really funny, so I told you about my captain who um, was just probably one of the best captains, Mikey Zell's his name. Uh, he pushed me, I made driver, and I went from being on ladder three, a pretty um, pretty good ladder to be on, really good crew, we run, we run some diverse calls to going out to a really slow engine. Um, and it was a big shock for me. And it was the first single company station that I'd been at too. So I went from um, being around uh, eight people and laughing all day, every day and having something to do all day, every day to being around four people. And uh, we were an older crew. So I remember uh, my first cycle out there one night, it was eight o'clock and everybody was in bed. And <laughs> And you were I was questioning so, your own existence. <laughs> oh my God. I was so depressed. I think, um, squid when he listens to this is going to laugh, but, uh, I think tears came to my eyes that night because I was so sad. I was so mad at myself for, uh, I was like, why did I do this permission? This was the worst thing I could have ever done. Um, I was so mad at myself, but, uh, you know, when you first make driver, you've got to write reports more often. And I realized that there'd been a long period since I'd been at school and I didn't feel confident in my abilities. So I said, you know, why not? Let me go back to school, see what it's all about. Uh, one of my friends who um, got promoted at the exact same time that I did started his master's with Columbia Southern University. So um, I was like, well, let me let me jump in there. Cool. And, and, it, and what degree it's are, actually, you, are you chasing? I'm working on a master's of public administration. It's a 
it's through UNC Pembroke, which is a, a brick and mortar school in North Carolina, but it's, they've got an all online format. So it's pretty neat that I can do all of it online. And it's funny, it's a three year program. And uh, I started in January of 2015. So I should be graduating soon, but I'm not. I've probably got <laughs> I've probably got two more years, which is which is great because they let me, uh, you know, pick up the pace, slow down the pace, um, and that's pretty neat. So, excellent. Is that something you'd recommend that people do? Oh, no, absolutely. It, um, going back to school, I think, was one of uh, one of the biggest turning points in my career for me because I didn't realize. Well, I had no clue what the master's was all about. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I just was going to give it a shot. Well, it turns out that um, the master's program is strictly preparing you to be um, some sort of leader, especially if you're doing public administration. But their focus is on research and looking for problems and looking for ways to correct those problems. And so far, all of my classes have had a final paper, which is a pretty long paper, but it's allowed you to pick any topic of your choice to research. And each one has a different way of doing it. Like one of them was um, a policy analysis. So uh, research something and try to write a policy on it. And one was action research. So find something where current practices are not best practices and develop best practices. So I used the fire service for everything that I've written. And it's the only reason... um, that I got so detailed into the research I've done on suicide prevention. Um, and, you know, I, those papers, because I didn't realize this, a lot of stuff that you read um, when you look at some of the magazines and fire publications, uh, there are a lot of opinion pieces and um, experience pieces. Yeah. But there's not a lot of research pieces where um, you actually look at peer-reviewed literature and research that's been conducted on populations and um, – you, you put it all together to find commonalities and find better ways to do things. So writing those papers kind of made me unique and it gave me something that um, publications needed. So I, I got pretty lucky, I would say. Definitely. Um, in, in reading some of your articles, uh, you, you do have a little bit of a unique perspective and bring something a little different to the table. And, and I think that's really cool. So that kind of moves us right to uh, your class or I guess, you know, kind of your niche, right? Which is, which is this idea of uh, suicide prevention in the fire service. Um, and specifically, your FDIC class is called Awareness Level Suicide Prevention. And I think that's a really cool title. It kind of evokes this idea of like the awareness operations training as we think of in technical rescue or hazmat. Um, so can you just kind of tell us what that's about? And um, I don't know, we'll kind of, we'll kind of keep digging into it from there. All right. So um, first I, uh, I, I, something I should include um, in two, have you heard of the Honeywell FDIC scholarship? Yes. Okay. So talking about my luck again, so when I was at that really slow station, I ran across an article uh, talking about their first scholarship program. And it was like, hey, just, you know, you know, ha- nominate somebody, have somebody nominate you. So, of course, uh, um, one of my really, really good friends nominated me. And it was the first year of the program, so they didn't have a lot of applications. So I got in and I went to FDIC for the first time in 2015. 
and that was also the same year I'd started the master's program. And um, Steve Kerber was the keynote speaker for that year. And he really um, impressed upon us and talked about um, the importance of research and of finding better practices. So sitting at FDIC that year, um, I went from being somebody who um, I think a lot of firefighters are like, where you look around and you see people doing things and making a difference and finding issues and solving them. And for, and I know for me, I drew this line between me and them, like, Hey man, these people are really awesome. I'm glad that these people exist. Um, maybe one day I, uh, I'll figure something out and I can contribute to this fire service. But my thoughts, you know, I remember when I left that year, I left FDIC. I, my goal was to come back in 10 years and teach. Um, well then that fall for school, the assignment was action research. So, um, find an area where current practices are not best practices, research it and help develop better practices. I emailed our safety chief on the fire department and asked him, you know, Hey, what's, what's an area that you think we should look into? And I was thinking that he was going to come back with, you know, um, something technical, you know, something rescue related, you know, tactics, um, you know, writ, you know, it's the stuff that we hear about all the time, but he came back with uh, suicide prevention and it really caught me off guard because it was the first time that I'd heard that mentioned. Um, and I'd heard it mentioned in the fire department. So I went back and just started researching it and I guess things kind of fall in place in a certain way. Uh, that same year I was also in a, in a terrible funk. I was just, things weren't right. I, I was I was low. I, just, I was depressed. Um, I think suicide crossed my mind a few times. And I also recognized that um, these feelings were not okay and they were not normal. So I knew in that time that um, no matter how depressed I was, I shouldn't let anybody know. So um, at that same time, you know, I'd come to work and I was super happy, super positive. Um, everything was okay. But then when I'd leave work, um, you know, I just I felt like crap. And so I started researching suicide in the fire service, and I was just so um, blown away, first of all, by um, the amount of information that I found and the rates of suicide in the fire service. Yeah. Um, and, and then as I was reading some of the causes and reading some of the reasons for those causes, I was, I was relating to them. I was like, okay, silence, um, you know, uh, fear of showing any vulnerability. Um, it was all like, everything was just kind of dinging and it was making sense. So I just got really into the research and really into trying to understand it. And for me, it almost became, um, you know, just like, uh, like a huge purpose, like, okay, I'm going to figure out number one, why it's happening in the fire service to so many other people. And number two, why I feel this way. Um, so, um, <clears throat> At the time, I didn't recognize that that would lead to a really good research paper, uh, personal experience, plus the actual research of others. Um, so I did all the work and I sent it to my um, safety chief and he, you know, just absolutely loved it. And he was like, hey, uh, could you make this into a class um, and we can share it with the department? And at that time, we had a online drive where anybody could create a class and put it on the online drive and then um, companies could review it. So... I, I created a class and I, I put it on PowerPoint, expecting it to be on the drive for the entire department. I left my name off of it because, again, you know, it wasn't a subject that we were talking about. 
and I didn't really feel comfortable with it. So I left my name off of it, um, sent it to the chief. And in May, he, he calls me and he says, hey, are you ready for July? And I was like, yeah, what are you talking about? He said, we're going to deliver your class to the entire fire department. That's fantastic. I, was like, <laughs> I didn't think that at the time. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> we're going to do what? Um, so, yeah. Uh, and it did. It actually did turn out to be fantastic. I was scared to death. Um, I was still I, I mean, I've only been with the Raleigh Fire Department 10 years. So I'm still fairly new. Um, so at the time that we presented this, I'd only been on like seven years and I just made lieutenant and, uh, I was trying to stay off the radar because, uh, no matter what, when, um, when you're different and you promote or you're successful in one end, it kind of, you know, people get to talking and, uh, you know, so I, I was just trying to keep off the radar and here we're doing the exact opposite. I'm going to teach a class and I'm going to teach a class to me at the time. I was afraid it was going to be controversial because, um, North Carolina is the South and, uh, suicide has, you know, I know the way I was raised, um, suicide's a sin. So I, I was scared to death to, you know, have this discussion. Um, but it was just amazing how, when we started presenting the class to our peers, how many people that we connected with and, you know, the first couple of classes, I, I, I kind of figured things out and I was able to change it up a little bit. And towards the end, as you're teaching, you've got people nodding their head. Um, you could, you could look around the room and you could tell the people that you're connecting with and the people who had felt those same feelings, um, who'd had those same problems and who were annoyed that nothing was happening and that we were suffering in silence and that we weren't doing anything to help each other. So, by the end of it, it was an incredible experience. It was uh, very rewarding. That's excellent. I mean, I, the whole purpose of, of these conferences is to get something and take it back and share it, right? And that <laughs> pulling, pulling no, that, hose. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. Can, no, you well, I was just going to say, like, you know, a lot of us, we come back and it's like, hey, I, I check out this new tool or I learned this new technique for, like, you know, throwing a ladder or pulling hose or something. Like you went back and potentially gave people tools to like stay alive and live more healthily. And, and that's incredible. You know, I, I never um, thought of it that way, but um, no, you're right. Like it, it was neat. I, I still, I still say luck because everything just falls into place for a reason. It was neat how um, I had just started grad school. I had that chief that asked for it. I had my experiences. And I didn't find out until about halfway through teaching the class. Um, that chief uh, finally pulled me aside. And the reason that he asked me to do that was because he himself was at a point where he was severely depressed and suicide had crossed his mind several times. No um, and he actually, yeah, he actually, when we taught the class, I couldn't understand. I mean, I thought he was just trying to enable me and trying to develop me. Um, I couldn't understand why he had empowered me so much, why he had let me do so much research. And, um, I was not expecting to have any credit for it. I, I sent it all to him for him to use. And that's kind of the way we do things around here. Somebody can do a lot of research and we just hand it off and then it gets used. And that, uh, officer kind of doesn't take credit, but presents it. So I, I was expecting him to, you know, take credit for it and he wouldn't take any credit for it. He, he wanted me there with him every class. Um, 
and he gave me all the credit and I, I just couldn't understand. And he finally told me that he wasn't at the point where he was ready that he could do it. Um, he needed help. And he actually, in our class, he shared his experience, which I don't know if he knows, maybe now looking back, he does know, but um, if you look at uh, NFPA 1500, they, they're making a lot of changes with safety and they're putting a lot in about behavioral health. And one of their recommendations is annual training on behavioral health to include personal stories, more specifically success stories. So to have a battalion chief that is highly respected um, stand before his peers and um, have tears in his eyes and talk about his struggles but then talk about, hey, I, I reached out, I received help, and now I feel so much better. That's so empowering for everybody around to say, okay, you know, this guy was struggling, and now he's not. So it was pretty neat how all that worked out. That's so strong. That's that's so cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. Oh yeah. Um, well, and, and thanks for uh, like being transparent about kind of, I mean, just just darkness, you know. And, and struggles in your own life. Um, something that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, I, I think we talk a lot about looking for signs in other people because, you know, isn't that just like us, right? As firefighters, <laughs> we always want to solve everyone else's problem rather than look at ourselves. But the reality is I'm just as likely to suffer PTSD or to become depressed than as is my neighbor, you know, the guy next to me. Um, so I think kind of the more interesting question is what signs can I look for within myself that might point to like a growing darkness and what are some of those first steps to try to arrest a mental health decline in, in an individual like in myself? I, I like that you asked about um, myself because it, I think one of the first thing people always ask is, okay, what can I look for in somebody else? And you know, what should I do? And yeah, you know, for some people, there are going to be signs and um, it is going to be apparent. A lot of times when that does happen, it's almost way further than it should have gone. Um, like the experience I had, and it's when I first taught my class to the Riley Fire Department, I never shared my experience. And um, when I taught at FDIC, I didn't share my experience because I just wasn't comfortable doing it yet. Um, plus I didn't want it to be about me, but then as I went on, I kind of felt almost like a poser because here Chief Hobson could share his experience and I couldn't, and he doesn't mind me using his name. He actually, um, at FDIC, um, he stood up and talked during my class, which was even, I mean, it was even more incredible. He, he shared his story with the crowd at FDIC, but I think within ourselves, we recognize that darkness. Um, but the problem is we're afraid to admit it because we feel that something's wrong with us. Does that make sense? Yes, that absolutely makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that it's a, it's a matter of recognizing it within yourself because we recognize it. We know when things aren't right. We know when we're sad. I know for me during that time, um, I would come home and I'd have no motivation. I would just want to go sleep. And I, I would take like four hour naps, which is totally not like me, but that's what I would do every day. I would just go sleep. And that was like my favorite thing was just to sleep, turn everything off, escape. Um, I, I just wasn't happy. I, I was miserable. But when I come back to work the next day, I was super happy. And maybe that's why I was so exhausted was that um, that whole putting on a happy show is exhausting. It's tiring not being yourself and not addressing what's going on. So first, 
mental health issues are normal. They're common. Uh, we can all have them. And something, your life could be perfect today and something could happen that could totally change it and could lead to a mental health issue. It could lead to uh, depression. It could lead to alcoholism. Um, we as firefighters, be, like you talked about earlier, because of our job, we have a greater susceptibility to PTSD. Um, and then the co-occurring disorders, which I think are the worst disorders for us. So you get depressed, um, you use alcohol to cope with it. Um, and then that depression was either caused by an, an incident or was caused by a personal factor. But all of a sudden you have that incident that's in the back of your head. So now um, you have that depression and alcoholism. And maybe for some, you also have the PTSD. So you have these co-occurring issues. And for us to be expected to deal with it on our own and to keep it within ourselves is just not okay. Really and truly, if we can, and everybody says they hate using the phrase, change the fire service culture. I don't know what a better phrase for it is, but if we could change uh, the fire service view on mental health to where everybody recognizes that it's okay to not be okay, that mental health issues are common, that it doesn't make you crazy, it doesn't make you messed up, it doesn't make you incapable. It just means that right now something's going on and it needs to be addressed then we would see a huge change. If people could come to work and when they're first starting to feel abnormal, be able to talk about it, it might keep them from using those maladaptive coping strategies like alcohol or, um, you know, taking uncertain risks, you know, going out. Um, it, it could keep you from doing things that are going to make it worse. I don't think I answered your question. I think I went completely off no, on a tangent. No, I, I think that's I think that's cool. Um, because I think what you touched on was the fact that that we're not broken if we, you know, have have some sort of, you know, mental health, you know, mental health issues. Like two years ago, or 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 longer. I think I I didn't even have kind of the understanding that like a mental health issue is is the psychological equivalent of a sprained ankle or, you know, pulled hamstring, like it's just something that needs to be addressed and treated and, and taken care of, you know, you just got to pay attention to the thing, take care of it, you know, and, um, and that we can treat it that way as, as a, instead of like stigmatizing it. Yeah. I like, I like the way you put that. Um, because, and, and not just really <laughs> layman's, I mean, I know there's, there's different differences, but like, I think if we can just view it that way, like, Hey man, like you just have this, like this little thing you got to take care of, like, let's pay attention to it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just deal with it. Um, don't be ashamed of it. Cause I think being ashamed of it and feeling damaged or broken, I, I think that really makes it so much worse because you start to ruminate, you start to blame yourself. You start to, um, have negative feelings towards yourself, which, you know, just makes everything worse. So if we can just recognize that it's going to happen, stuff, stuff's going to happen and it's okay. That's cool. So I guess moving on to from looking into ourselves to looking outward at uh, the people around us, the, the people on the fire trucks with us. Um, you had an article that just dropped today 
and I've only been able to kind of you know read it fairly briefly. Unfortunately, I don't have like really great notes on it, but the title is "Can Peer Support Prevent Firefighter Suicide?" And you, it's again, it's a research-based piece. Um, you look deeply into uh, um, some theories from a uh, Dr. Joiner. Um, so, and that definitely is something I wanted to talk with you about was like peer support. Number one, kind of what's the go-to for peer support? Like what's the first like speed dial option that we should have when we recognize something in someone else? And then I guess like that bigger picture, I think it's a great title. Can we do this? Can peer support prevent firefighter suicide? Right. That I mean, I think, and I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, they're so sick of all these articles and all these statistics saying, hey, suicide's here, but nothing talking about ways to address it. It's just, hey, you know, it's here. Look at that. Look at us. We are more likely to die by suicide in the line of duty. Um, we're more likely to have PTSD, but there, there wasn't a lot out there saying, hey, this is what we can do. So I really wanted to f- figure out something we could do. Um, and so it's, Thomas Joyner, Dr. Joyner, uh, I can't remember how I stumbled across him, but um, I stumbled across him and I, I loved his work. So um, he's written a couple books. I read them. He um, is the director of um, an institute at FSU where they basically research suicide. And just this year, they have published, I think, 10 peer-reviewed articles. And in 2016, the CDC identified that suicide was a growing concern among um, the nation and among uh, the world population. Um, and even the World Health Organization recognized that suicide was a growing problem. And so the CDC put out a call for research on um, occupations that were more likely to experience suicide. And Dr. Joyner um, got to work on that. And he he looked he started looking into the fire service because he found that there's been a lot of research in the military. There's been a lot of research in law enforcement, but there has not been a lot of empirical data conducted on the fire service. So he, he got to work on that. And his theory is a pretty neat theory. And I really like it because it's a simple model. It only has three variables. And basically what he says is there are a lot of risk factors that can lead to suicide. I mean, Everybody has so many different life experiences that we can't be expected to recognize all these differences and be able to point them out. But there's one common final pathway that these fit into. And so that final pathway, which is his final theory, only consists of three variables. And it's basically connecting and contributing. So not being lonely. And then the contributing side is... um, being effective, um, being productive, not um, not being a burden. So connecting and contributing are the two pieces that he says are necessary for the will to live. And then when you introduce the third component, the third variable, which is an acquired ability, um, and the acquired ability for suicide, I don't think a lot of us realize that if any of us right now, um, you know, get a phone call and somebody says, hey, uh, you're fired, go home. Um, and you immediately get really upset and you say, all right, I give up. I'm going to kill myself. Um, it's not easy to grab a gun and shoot yourself. It, it, it doesn't work that way. It, it's not a knee jerk reaction. It's not a quick, it's not a quick reaction. Um, you actually have to have that acquired ability, 
which comes from um, exposure to traumatic and painful events or habituation uh, to traumatic and painful events, um, which uh, previous suicide attempts can lead to that acquired ability, that habituation. But basically, um, the amygdala is the part in our brain that uh, controls fear. Um, and it's autonomic, just like our heart and just like our breathing. You don't think about your heart beating. You don't think about your breathing. Um, they just do their job. Well, the amygdala works that way, too. Um, you don't think about that fear, but that fear is there. And it also equates to our um, survival instinct. So um, an example that I think a lot of people can relate to, uh, if you think about when you were a kid, um, if you like rode a bicycle or skateboarded, something like that, and you wanted to do a jump, um, what usually happens the first time when you like get to the edge? I see you stop and look at it. Yeah, you say you, say you want to do it. You're excited. You're yeah. hyped. You're going to do this jump. Yeah, like and then right when the you edge, get to the edge, and then you kind of like, uh, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you hit the brakes right away. Um, I remember when I got my ropes technician certification, I, I, I didn't know how afraid of heights I was until then. Um, so the very end of it was uh, like the victim management and repelling, and we went up uh, like 100 feet. And I remember getting to that edge, and man, something stopped me. Like I, it, like the fear, I, my heart started racing, and I could not look over that edge. Um, but as that rope certification um, course went on, and as I, you know, did it more, all of a sudden, uh, that fear kind of went away. And now I look back, I love rappelling, and I like heights, which is weird. Um, and there's absolutely zero fear. But when I first started, there was a huge fear. So. Um, for me, I can kind of relate to that habituation or, um, that, you know, that exposure to, um, I guess a scary experience. So for us to develop the acquired ability and for us to get that last component, um, you have to be able to overcome the instinct to survive, which it's not easy. It's very difficult. So when looking at suicide and looking at people who've completed suicide and trying to understand you know, what can we do? Um, if you can understand connecting and contributing. So, um, is this person feel like they're not connecting a uh, divorce? A divorce can make you feel, um, it can actually affect that connecting and contributing. A divorce can make you feel lonely. Cause of course, especially if you had kids, you're alone. And then, um, the contributing side of it, uh, you're no longer, um, that, that role, that spouse, that parent, you lose that. Um, same thing um, at work. If something happens and you get pulled off the truck or if you get passed up for a promotion, um, you can immediately not feel like you're contributing. So taking that other component of the connecting and trying to understand that connecting um, and every bit of research I've looked at, everything I've read has basically said that social support is the number one protective factor. Um, feeling that you are connected, feeling that you are part of a group, um, or having that strong social support. So having, um, strong family, strong crew, just some sort of strong social support is huge. Um, and I know for me, when I was depressed, when I was just not right, it, it was funny. I would never talk about it. Um, I actually, um, I had two really good friends and, um, I was so, uh, miserable at that time that I didn't want to even be around them. So, you know, I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to hang out. I just wanted to be alone. But they both kind of recognized that something was wrong. And they made a point to reach out to me and made a point to talk. And luckily, 
one of them, um, she has a lot of experience with mental health, a lot of experience with suicide. And she understood that social support component, that connecting component. Um, and although she's not a part of a formal peer support team, she understood the what peer support is. It's basically just being there for somebody, um, active listening, um, validating their feelings, um, you know, reminding them that, hey, what you feel is normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, it's okay to feel this way. So from having that experience, from the research that I did, from looking at all of, jo- all of Dr. Joyner's work, um, it really kind of showed me that that connecting component was huge. And so when we look at the fire service and we look at the fact that for the longest time historically, it just mental health issues, suicide, all that, they just weren't acceptable to talk about in the fire service. And I remember when we, we taught our class, we actually had a survey and one of the questions was, um, do you think somebody who is having a mental health crisis um, could be um, fit for duty? Um, and then another question was, you know, if they receive help, could they be fit for duty? And a lot of people said no. So that mentality that mental health was not okay, that was a big barrier in the fire service. So the goal with this is, okay, let's let's create a, a backbone, a, a support network, a group of people that have diverse backgrounds, diverse understandings, diverse experiences um, that are willing to be there for each other. And we, we threw that together here in Raleigh, and it's amazing because we have, I mean, young guys, old guys, uh, people who've had divorces, people who've lost children, um, people who've not had anything significant but have a desire to serve and be there for each other. And so we have this big group that says, hey, we're here. Um, if things aren't okay, we're here for you. And I, I just know for me, I strongly believe that that support network um, could really give somebody who is in a deep, dark place um, a little bit of hope. Very cool. So from a, from a one-on-one level, like something I should be looking to do is is help that person feel connected, um, help them understand like that we value their contributions. And then is there like is there like formal kind of like a plan A formal um, resource that that we should like immediately try and refer someone to, or should we just like take that individually on our own? Like, what's your take on that? So uh, one of the biggest things for um, the understanding of peer support is to recognize that peer supporters are not counselors, you're not therapists, you can't fix anything per se. Um, You are just there as a bridge between um, a person who may need a mental health resource. And as that bridge, your job is to be able to direct them. So that's really with peer support training, they learn the resources because I, I don't think many people know what resources are out there. So they learn about resources and they learn about therapies um, I know before I even started all of this, I never knew that psychologists actually um, did more than talk. I thought, you know, it was just talking, but I learned about, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR. And actually, Chief Hobson, when he was um, going through his depression, he used EMDR tra- um, therapy. And so for him to, you know, stand before everybody and say how much it helped was powerful. But we also had um, the psychologist from the Raleigh Police Department come talk to our group. And she treats people who have PTSD. And it was really powerful to hear her say that um, how that treatment can actually help uh, take somebody who has this um, event that is causing anxiety and how her treatment can actually disassociate that 
event from the anxiety. Um, and so the person, you know, doesn't forget the event, doesn't go away. You're not erasing their memory, but it takes away um, the negative anxiety, the negative reaction to the event. And so she, she taught us, you know, what she does. Um, and then something else that she said, which I think every time you hear it, it really is reaffirming. But she said, man, I love my job because I love when I can make people feel better. So to be a peer supporter, you have to try to actively learn about the resources. Um, and that's, that's it's just like everything else in the fire service. That's why we have a team. That's why we have a group. Um, our peer support team, I, we've delegated to people, um, a couple of guys, we've called offices, called therapists, and we basically talk to them, learn what they do, and find out if they're willing to be a resource for us. And we, we just collect those resources, we get them on a website. That way, if a peer supporter is talking to somebody, and they recognize that this person um, needs a little more than just that conversation, they can, get, they can offer them these resources. There's a high-risk procedure so, you know, if somebody um, is discussing suicide, has a suicide plan, you've got to go through with that high risk procedure and refer them um, to one step and then to follow up with that referral. And most of our peer supporters, we don't put that on them. Um, we make sure that they contact the leadership of the team or know that, OK, if they are immediately at risk, you need to try to keep them online and call 911 and get an officer there. So we try to make sure that we explain to the peer supporters that you're not there to fix the problem. You're not there to provide therapy or to provide counseling. You're there to be there for that person. Um, you're there to um, make it safe, um, make them comfortable, just listen, relate, validate. And for a lot of people, just having somebody there is going to be enough. And, you know, I learned through my experiences that even if you refer somebody and you know deep in your heart that that person needs more than just a peer supporter, that person needs a counselor, needs a therapist, um, they're not always going to take the advice. They're not always going to do it. And it doesn't mean that you failed as a peer supporter. Um, you, you can't, you know, allow that to bother you. And I, I had one experience where I had a guy and he lost his job. Um, he was a police officer for 20 years and he had to resign and he had, you know, no other skills, no other desire to do anything. So he was, he was already feeling like a complete failure on that end. He also went through a divorce at the same time. And now he was drinking heavily and he actually saw the work that I was doing. So he reached out to me and we talked and, you know, every time he called, I was there for him. I talked to him. Our conversations lasted a long time. And I, I mean, every conversation I told him that I really think he needs to talk to a counselor. He needs a therapist because I was really worried about him. Um, based on our conversations, I was scared that any day that he was going to take his life. He never explicitly said that he was suicidal, but just based on everything that I knew, based on everything that he was saying, I was scared to death for him. And he wouldn't talk to a counselor. He said that he tried it and they don't help, um, that he just liked talking to me. And so that really bothered me. I, I you know, it was, it weighed heavily on me and I, I felt like I wasn't doing the best that I could do. Well, time went by and, you know, a few months later he reached out and he thanked me and he told me what a big difference it made that I was just listening to him and that I was there for him and that he wasn't alone. So, that just kind of, I guess, reaffirmed to me that being there for somebody, um, giving them the opportunity to express themselves and to say exactly what they're feeling is huge. Yeah, um, that's that's so cool to be able to have that kind of impact on someone's life just by being available. Um, so if someone who's listening to this is interested in, in being a peer supporter, obviously you said you guys have set something up in North Carolina. 
Um, I believe there's something going on through IAFF. Um, do, you, do you know much about that or how someone can go through the process to become a peer supporter through the IAFF? Okay, so yeah, and actually um, the article that just dropped today, uh, the end of it, uh, gives you um, directions to go through the IAFF, go through Illinois Firefighter Peer Support. But what we found, and I think a lot of departments are finding, is it's expensive. So IAFF is $7,500 to host. And I know that there are grants. Um, and I know for us at, at our fire department, I guess it, it, it's, a pri- it, it's funny how things are a priority, but they're not a priority. So it's a priority to have this training, but it's not a priority to budget for this training. So we couldn't host the IAFF, um, number one, because of the cost. Number two, I guess there was uh, nobody willing to go through that grant process. Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Team, we contacted them, and initially uh, to host their training, it was $5,000. So again, I got the no, um, that's too expensive, we can't do it. Um, So I kind of talked to them, and the head instructor at the time, Matt Olson, he said, hey, it sounds like y'all really need this, so we're willing to come do it and do it for whatever you're willing to pay us, which is big because um, he's got to pay for a hotel. He's got to pay for a flight, two instructors. So um, out of pocket, their cost would be probably over $1,500. Fortunately, I learned that um, our community college, if we went through them, that they would pay for half of it. And then we found out that there was another organization um, that would be willing to pay for a part of it. So we did a lot of um, negotiating and we were able to uh, collect $3,000 to have it, but it still was a big headache. So again, I know it's it, it's going to be hard to put on that training. So what we found is right now there is no national standard on peer support, number one. Number two, when you take the peer support class and you learn peer support, you learn that it's something that we've always been doing and something that we should be doing. There's no um, specific skill to peer support because like I said, you're not a counselor. You don't fix a problem. You are just there for somebody. So peer support is what we should be doing as firefighters. We should be there for each other. And a couple of you I've talked to that, um, teach it and have been teaching and are passionate about it. You know, the dream is that one day we won't even need to have a peer support class because we will all just recognize that we should all be peer supporters. So what we did in North Carolina is after um, I sat through Matt's class three times because he's probably just one of the most fantastic instructors you'll ever listen to. And he shared all of his course materials and he basically said I could take it and um, go from there. Um, So we used their presentation, their material, um, and we kind of revamped it to fit us. And so now we have two instructors that can teach that two day class. And uh, the goal is to, you know, do a few more train the trainers and get a, a few more people trained. But what I would say to a department, to an individual, and I know it's easier said than done because I've been fighting the red tape myself. I mean, even all the work that I've done, um, m- some people in my department still are like, Hey, but you're not a psychologist. So, um, we probably, you know, we, we, they're so careful. They're so worried. Um, I, I've heard the, you know, if what if you talk to somebody and then they kill themselves um, and then their family sues the fire department? It's like, no, that's not going to happen. Are you saying that we shouldn't be there for each other out of fear that somebody's going to hurt themselves? That's worse. 
Um, yeah, that's that's a lot worse. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's so such frustrating. a pervasive. Uh, it's such a pervasive thing among leadership. It, you know, specifically in the public sector and in in fire departments, of of this liability laden leadership where we're just we're just so scared that. Um, you know, something that we're going to get sued. Um, maybe we should just be um, more concerned with doing the right thing and maybe saving someone's life. No, oh, that's the truth. And um, I, I've, I, cause I've been fighting. I've been, I've, I've hit the red tape several times. Um, the reason that we have uh, a North Carolina peer support team is exactly for that reason. We decided that because departments or agencies are going to be so concerned um that, hey, let's create a nonprofit group um, that will blanket all the individual departments. Um, and then it, two reasons. I think somebody who is going through a tough time is going to be more willing to reach out to a group that's not affiliated with their department. Yeah. Especially if you've got leadership um, chiefs on the team. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be that fear in the back of your head. You know, what if I say the wrong thing and they pull me offline or send me to, um, you know, the mandatory um, EAP, uh, what if, so we just, we, we basically modeled ourselves after the Illinois firefighter peer support team. Um, what they did was awesome. So we said, Hey, let's do the same thing. And we, we actually just submitted all of our paperwork to the state to, um, become a nonprofit. And so we're just slowly adding more resources and adding more people to the team and, uh, trying to get more people trained. That's really cool. Okay. So, um, for anyone interested in, in being a peer supporter, um, anyone interested in these resources, I'm going to list them all in the show notes. Um, several articles that Dina's written, uh, one for stationpride.com, one for FDIC, this one that just dropped with fire engineering. We'll find a way to get a link to that. Um, really cool. Just very simple diagram that explains, uh, what Dina was just talking about with that connectedness, um, and contribution leading into, you know, kind of the ability potentially to harm oneself. Um, and, and, and then probably something with the Illinois, um, I'm sorry, Illinois state peer support. Can you, what, what's the actual title of it again? It's Illinois firefighter peer support. Okay. So we'll link to that as well. And, uh, hopefully some people will take advantage of that resource and, and start some things in their own area. Um, one Something thing, else. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Nope, go. Uh, one other thing. Have you um, heard the Behind the Shield podcast? Have you listened to any of those? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. So episode 39, um, he interviews um, Dustin Hawkins in Florida. And it is probably out of all of his episodes, the most powerful one. So make sure you listen to that one. Um, but, Basically, Dustin went through quite possibly the most traumatic um, experience that any firefighter could could live through. And he talked about his experience and um, talked about, you know, when he finally made the decision that he was going to end his life and that he needed help. uh, And the major breakdown when he tried to go through EAP. And I mean, they, they put him with a child psychologist. That's helpful. Yeah, so he's sitting there, and uh, his first meeting with the psychologist, um, she starts crying hearing his experience. So like, he's like, wait, she's more traumatized than I am right now. Uh, so from his experience, uh, he did um, – I mean, just it's amazing what he's done. They created Redline Rescue, and they um, work with the Florida firefighter um, 
health and safety collaborative. It might be safety and health collaborative. I always get those two backwards. But um, if you listen to that episode, he the second half of it, they explain where they started with Redline Rescue, which is a peer support resource in Florida. Um, it's also a nonprofit. And they want to share it with anybody and everybody. And they refuse to charge for it. Um, they want to get it out there. And it's a really neat system that they've created. They, um, they have an online resource to where all of their peer supporters enter demographics, work experience, personal experience. And when somebody, you know, goes on there to request peer support, they kind of give a little bit of background and the system connects people. So, you know, says, all right, you know, divorce, um, you know, been in the fire service 20 years, it'll try to find peer supporters with similar backgrounds so that they can talk to somebody who has a similar background. So if you are interested in peer support and trying to get something going, definitely listen to that episode and then go to their webpage and look at some of those resources. Fantastic. Cool. We'll link to that as well. Redline Rescue and Dustin. And yeah, check also check out that uh, Behind the Shield podcast. James is doing a, a lot of good stuff over there. Okay. Um, wow, there, there was a lot there. And we could probably talk about that for hours. I think uh, we'll move on. Um, although there's, I don't know, there's a lot of good stuff. But um, something I really did want to get to was um, you're – I read that you were the first female captain in 20 years at Raleigh. Is that right? That's right. All right, cool. So are you good? You're all, you're all giggly. We good? Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's it's funny because um, they made such a big deal out of it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Why I think it's funny. Okay, all right, good. Uh, well, you're the first female guest on the show. I mean, we've only had a few episodes. But um, it seems to me and uh, that this could be a sexist sentiment in itself. But it seems to me that navigating the fire service as a female could be difficult. Um, so I kind of want to ask some questions about that part, but I guess, first of all, am I, am I correct or am I skewed in just thinking that the experience for a young male is going to be different than the experience for a young female going into the fire department? No, I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, and it's something that from day one in the back of your head, you know it, but, um, you spend your entire career trying to um, hide it or trying to avoid it or trying to um, dismiss it. So, or at least that's, that that was my mentality. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so then can you speak to like, you had these, you had these two careers that were traditionally not female um, as a police officer and as a firefighter. Why has it been important to you, you know, to kind of pursue, um, those, those types of careers rather than something more quote unquote, traditionally female. Well, for me, I, I was just always that tomboy. So, um, I played sports growing up. I rode my bike. Um, my, my poor dad, uh, my parents had three girls. So my poor dad had a house of, uh, four women, but I was the youngest and I was uh, daddy's girl and I was a big tomboy. So while the other girls were, um, you know, doing makeup and going out and having fun, like I was with dad, uh, I tried to go hunting with him, but I talked too much and scared away the deer. So he never let me come back. But uh, growing up, I just, I, 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 I associated more with, um, being a tomboy and the outdoors, um, and just being active. Like I just love being active. And I remember in school, you know, sitting in school, everybody hates sitting in school. 
but you'd hear sirens and, you know, you kind of perk up and you, you, you know, fantasize about like for me at that time, I, I wanted to be the police officer. So I wanted to be out there. And I remember, you know, just when I grow up, my job's going to be out there helping people, um, being active, you know, to me being at the time being a police officer is great because you uh, didn't have to work in an office. Uh, you got to be outside all day. Um, you had a job that required brains and fitness and, you know, the fire service is the same thing. Um, you're not stuck in an office, uh, and your job requires, uh, a little bit of brains, a little bit of fitness. And that just always uh, spoke to me. And for me, um, the idea of success was never about um, being rich or, um, you know, having huge titles. It was about doing something that was good for other people. And my goal was to always be somebody who valued uh, service over uh, achievement in others. So that's awesome. I guess that's, that's how that worked. That's cool. So you talked about, or you, you were, you were laughing about like why it was kind of funny to you, this idea of, of like being the first captain in 20 years. I mean, uh, what's the story behind that? Well, so people did kind of make a big deal out of it. Uh, you know, there was, uh, the news did a little story on it. Um, and you know, of course uh, here I am, I'm proud, but when you really step back and look at it, it, I didn't do anything special. Um, I didn't, uh, yeah, there was nothing special about me. It just the timing of everything was perfect. There was a period um, from 1983 to 2004 where the Raleigh, and that's 20, that's 20-year period, where Raleigh Fire Department only hired three women. And it wasn't that they uh, were not trying to hire women. It was just that um, during the hiring process, previous experience um, was very beneficial for the fitness test and, I guess, for the written test. So uh, not a lot of women passed, number one. Number two, um, not a lot of women applied because there was there were really no recruiting efforts. I know I graduated from college and never even thought about being a firefighter because I remember in my head, you know, thinking this is not a woman's job. This is a man's job. Like, I'm not going to try to put myself <laughs> put myself there. Um, but then, like I said, you know, a- as a police officer, I saw what firefighters do. I was jealous. I saw Raleigh had a few women. And I was like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. But really and truly, yeah, I was the first female in 20 years because uh, there was a 20-year period where there weren't a lot of women that were hired. And there, there's with women, um, unfortunately, there's more attrition than with men. So out of those three that were hired in that 20-year period, only one of them, um, you know, completed a career. Um, and even since then, in June, we had f- three women that left. So you know, women as they get, you know, they have kids or it just they kind of look away i guess at times yeah cool well uh it's it's been cool to have you and um so i i want to move on to some of those standard questions that i that i like to ask uh all the guests who come on uh but i want to play a new game that, uh, i don't know maybe this will be lame or maybe it'll be fun but uh so i guess a little background on this uh i like going to conferences and, and, and learning new stuff and going to training classes. And this is something that, uh, that, that on the way back from a really long drive one time, we were all just delirious and we just started uh, playing fantasy firefighter draft. So instead of uh, fantasy football, we just, just were trying to name who we would want on our company if we could draft any firefighter living or dead from, from anywhere in the, in the country. So... All right, so we're going to play this game. You ready, Dina? I'm ready. All right, so you're the captain, so you can choose which seat you ride. 
Um, so I want to know your ideal fire service crew from any department, living or dead, and you can d- decide whether you're on an engine or a truck. Are you going to tell me yours first, second? <sighs> That's not really very fair. <laughs> Did I put you on the spot? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I will. If you're asking, I, I'll give something out there. I mean, I think it changes every time. But uh, well, how about you? How about you give one, and then and then I'll, I'll come up with something. Okay, so of course my first thoughts when you say this are like, you know, you think about all the um, people that have been most highlighted. And so you think about like Andy Fredericks, Ray Downey. Um, But I think I'm going to move away from all those because they will eventually all get taken in the draft. Um, So first I call Aaron Fields. He's a... He's a, he's my senior guy, and I'm actually uh, I'm riding in the back on this okay. engine. Okay, all right, yeah, that is smart. You're smart. It's the best <laughs> right. place to be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so I got Dina, Ali, and Aaron Fields in the back seat. That's a good start. That's a good start. Oh, so you're not gonna give me one of your guys? Oh, oh, so my backseater. Um, so if you steal Aaron, who would definitely be um, towards the top of my list. Uh, I would also be in the back seat, and I would choose uh, Jeff Shoup to ride with me. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. All right. So my new guy, brand new guy, is going to be Squid. Oh, okay. He's going to be in the back with us, so it's going to be me, Aaron, and Squid. Oh, nice. All right. That sounds pretty good. Oh, so I got to get. I got to take someone in the back seat too. So we're running up. We're running five. We're running deep on the engine. That's the idea here. That's it. I, yeah, you got to. Okay. Yeah, you got to. This is your this is your show. So if you say <laughs> we're going with five, we're going with five. And we got five. Okay. Um, I'll choose. I'll choose my homie Brian Olson, uh, who, who I actually do get to ride in the back seat with. But uh, nice. My man. My man Brian can be uh, can be in the back, and he won't he won't be allowed to touch hose at all ever. <laughs> but uh but he can he can open up the door for us and he can search off the line nice all right who's all right. Uh, who's driving you guys around um uh oh yeah greg greg wheeler he's he's driving us around okay. do you know do you know greg uh i know greg via social media <laughs> we haven't we haven't met in person actually yeah he actually uh told me about your podcast when it first came out but uh, um what up greg thanks dude yeah, uh, he is uh, probably one of the uh, most aggressive, uh, but very good drivers that I've ever met. Um, he uh, he drove the rescue at a station that I was at, and if they got a fire call, we got a fire call. Somehow he was fully dressed and pulling out of the station before our doors were shut. Like it was impressive that every is time. The driver you want for sure. Yeah, it, yeah. So that's my driver. All right, cool. Uh, I'm gonna select. The Wizard of Water, Dennis Laguerre, as my driver. And, nice. Uh, he is obviously knowledgeable about apparatus and and pumping, and and I I don't imagine we could uh, give him a combination of hose lines that would stump him. So if <laughs> I if I need water on the nozzle, I know he'll have it. The uh, the officer. This is the hardest part because there are so many, like so many people out there, um, but. Uh, so we talked about Caroline Brotherhood and how it started. And a couple years after it started, uh, Jay Bedencourt, who was the firefighter for Jeff Bowen and who was with him, um, wrote about his experience. But in it, he wrote about Jeff Bowen and what kind of leader he was um, and what kind of person he was. And as I read it, like I teared up. He reminded me of uh, that captain I talked about earlier, you know, the person that just kind of motivates you, did the right thing. Um, so our officer is going to be Jeff Bowen. 
Very nice. Uh, officer is definitely the hardest one. Um, so many, so many guys that I've learned from that are that are so legit. And I guess what I would look for in an officer is someone who knew exactly what he wanted and would communicate it uh, in a way that was brief, uh, but we knew exactly what he wanted within as few words as possible and would allow us to then do do the work and wouldn't be trying to to get involved too much. And, you know, the guy that really comes to mind when I think about that, and I haven't had an opportunity to work with him directly, but uh, there's a captain up here in Boise Fire Department named Rick Payne. And Rick was the guy who really turned me on to engine work when I was in the academy. And so I think I would I would select Rick Payne as my officer, uh, at least on, on today's pod, uh, podcast. So <laughs> I'd, have, uh, I'd have Rick leading us and... Uh, the rest of us trying to get get the job done. And the thing about Rick is if one of us screws up, he's more than capable of picking up that line and taking care of it himself. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, that was fun, I think. Was it fun for you? Yeah, you're lucky. You get to, you get to switch it up every time. Like, I, yeah, it, it, it I didn't fun. know I was going to be hard. a part of it. Thank you for flipping that on me, Dina, <laughs> so that I could be completely unprepared. <laughs> That's awesome. You did well. Oh well, uh, yeah. Those are two good crews. We should uh, be a double house, and uh, no, no problem. We can't solve. No, that'd be awesome. All right, Dina. If you could have every firefighter in America read one thing—a book, an article, or a blog post—what would it be? So this is what made that so hard. Was um, the book? Uh, have you read *The Last Men Out*? I'm. I have not. That's uh, that's Downey, right? Right. Yeah. That is. Um, that is awesome. Uh, it's the last minute out life on the edge at rescue Two firehouse. I first read it, uh, years ago and I read it in about two days. Like I could not stop reading. Um, and I've gone back at like every two years and reread it. It is an amazing book. You kind of learn the history of like the rescue Two company. It starts in the seventies. It goes, uh, through nine 11. So you get to know, um, all these guys, that died on 9-11. Um, but as you're reading it, you don't believe it's going to happen because you're getting to know them and you feel like you're a part of their family. Um, you feel like you're a part of that crew. But uh, it is an amazing book. Awesome. Okay, Last Men Out by Tom Downey, if I'm not mistaken. So we will link to that in the show notes as well. Um, and I'll put it on my list. That's kind of that's kind of the rule for me. Um, that's the whole reason I do this show is so I can like talk to interesting people, learn new things that I wouldn't know on my own and get book recommendations. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay. What is the fire service wasting its time on? You know, we talked about it earlier. Um, fear, that fear of liability, the fear that stops us from doing things that matter and doing the right thing. Yeah. We're just, that's so short and awesome. That makes me so happy that you said that. I, I, I mean, that, to me, like, that's our, every problem that we've ever had or everything that's just become so frustrating that's made our job difficult is usually the result of fear. Yeah, there's, I hope some people are listening to this, Dina. That's, that's amazing. Okay. Uh, last question. You're you're a captain, so uh, you could provide some good insight to this. 
What actionable advice would you give the firefighter who has an officer who refuses to train or only begrudgingly allows training? Um, yeah, you know, I, I thought about that a, a lot because I've heard that asked before. Um, so fortunately for me, uh, most of the, my training coming up was not from the officer. I was always lucky enough to have a senior guy like Justin Bolduck who really cared and we just go out there and do it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I worked for that one officer who every day at one o'clock we trained, which is awesome because it, it, it became a habit. And so every day at one o'clock, you know, your first thought is Ugh, training, but then you get into it and you're like, all right, you know, this is great. But what I found is, you know, just like going back to school, how uh, important that was for me. There are so many other things you can do. I, I used to hate reading books and um, I couldn't sit still long enough to get through a book. So I hardly ever read. And then the first promotional test I took, you had to read a lot. But one of the books was the Fire Officer Handbook of Tactics. And I remember prior to promoting, I did not want to read that book because I was like, oh, that's for officers, not for me. But that book was one of the most useful books on the promotional list. Um, just reading that book, he you know, taught you things. And then he also um, had examples and told stories. And a lot of people criticized the book because there are like so much, so many stories in it. But, you know, years later, when I think about some of those things um, and some of the stories he talked about, I'm able to uh, put it to use because I can connect. So um, I now read all the time. It's funny how I went from hating to read to every day after dinner, instead of watching TV, I go sit outside and read. Um, it's just become a habit and it's something I really enjoy and <clears throat> it makes you smarter. It makes you better. So if you end up for us, we get transferred a lot. I know some firehouses, you, uh, some cities, you stay at the same place. And I think that's amazing. Charlotte is like that, you know, you get somewhere and you stay until you want to leave. But for us, we're constantly moving. So nothing lasts forever. So if you end up, you know, on a crew where, you know, your officer doesn't train, it doesn't mean you can't get out there. Uh, just last day, we saw a video on fire engineering. I think they uh, had a 330-pound guy in full gear um, go through two rungs on a roof ladder. Wow. And, um, yeah, yeah, take off his air pack, slide it through, um, and then go through. And, I mean, for half a second, he was like, it's impossible. I can't do it. But then he got through. So, we've got a bunch of different shapes and sizes at our station. So me and my firefighter talked about it first thing in the morning. And, um, after lunch, he was like, Hey, we're going to do this. And I was like, yeah. So the two of us walk out there, we put the ladder on the ground. Uh, the new kid comes out. We don't ask anybody else to come out there. Cause I, you know, um, but then within 10 minutes, everybody's out there. So I think it takes just kind of getting out there, grabbing something. Um, and if that doesn't work, you get sick of that. Um, in that period of time, get into the books. It will make a huge difference. Go back to school. I mean, like I said earlier, going back to school has been huge for me. I like it. That's good. Actionable advice. Go get something. If getting something doesn't work, get a book. And, uh, yeah, that, that's amazing. Well, Dina, I've had a lot of fun, uh, talking with you. This has been really cool. Thanks for making the time to do it. Oh, absolutely. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> no, see, okay, actually, one last question. I wrote it down here and then I forgot to ask. You were you were really nervous, or it seemed like you were really nervous about doing this, and uh, you kept trying to, like, introduce me to different people to interview. And I'm like, well, no, that sounds cool, but I want to interview you first. Um, 
So, like one thing you mentioned when you when you did the training for your department, you didn't put your name on it, right? So, are are you getting any more comfortable now? I mean, you're about to do your se- your second year of teaching at FDIC. Um, I think more and more people just kind of being aware of who you are and what you're you know, what you're contributing. I mean, you've written I don't know, man, over a dozen articles that have been uh, uh, in national publications. So, are you getting any more comfortable getting out there? I. I- I guess so. Like when you first hit me up, I kind of was like, okay, no, this is like a joke. Cause who am I? <laughs> I'm no expert on anything. I've not been around long enough. Um, but no, and actually just right now, this conversation, I remember when we first started talking, I was wondering if we we're going to even make it to 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we far exceeded that. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm getting much more comfortable. I know FDIC, it was so funny. Um, this last year was the first year I taught there. And I, I wouldn't say I ruined or wasted the experience, but I did because I was so nervous that every night I went back to my hotel and reviewed my material, um, looked up other material because I wanted to be able to answer every question. I wanted to be able to be smooth. So I didn't go out. I didn't sit in any classes prior to my class. I just prepared. And then it went well. So now, uh, yeah. Just so now, you, can, so now you have to do that every time. Yeah, I, I no. have to quit being a hypocrite. <laughs> I have to I have to quit being a hypocrite and um, not being so afraid. Just yeah. do it. Yeah. So. Well, that's cool, uh, Dina. Thanks for doing this. Um, I, I appreciate your model of humility. I appreciate the model of of kind of relentlessness. Like you, you kept getting the answer no when it came to these you know peer support groups, and you found a way to make it on your own. So um, I think talking with you has made me better, and I hope it makes other people better as they listen to the show. So thanks so much for doing it. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. It's uh, so far your episodes have been really good and uh, it's really good things. So thank you. Thanks a lot. I'm Jeff Shoup, and we're getting down to the brass tacks and hard facts of doing your homework on your fire department for your fire control system. Fire hose, fire nozzle research. When a fire department is conscientious enough to make the push in that direction, they need to do their own homework. And what I mean by, by saying doing your own homework, what that means is you've got to look at your apparatus. You've got to look at your fire attack delivery system. You have to look at how many people you have in this apparatus, what kind of hose you plan to use, and what kind of nozzles. And it all sounds good when we're reading it from a book and so forth, or we're figuring out formulas and, and trying to determine, yeah, if we buy this, we'll flow this much water. No, homework is where we get a flow meter and we work with our equipment. It's always easy for someone to come into your department and say, hey, buy this, buy this, do this, do that. They leave town and you're stuck with something that doesn't work as planned. So when we say do your own homework, look at things like your operating pressures in your pumps. The operating pressure in the pump is one thing, 
the plumbing in the pump is another thing. So for fire departments that run something like uh, an SOP that says we're going to operate our pumps at 115, 120, or 125 pounds preset pressure, you can have a great hose delivery system and nozzle, but if you're not pumping it through that plumbing in that pump, you're not going to get the flow. This is where the flow meters come in to help you understand that, gee, that pressure and this system isn't working as planned. What does it take to get that flow that we desire or that we should have you know, on our attack hose? Yeah.